Hi, we're Ellen Taylor, and we're here to join you on your journey from pregnancy to birth, postpartum, and beyond. Here on the podcast, you'll get interviews with birth and parenting professionals, birth stories, and educational episodes to get you feeling confident, supported, and empowered on your journey to and through parenting. Welcome to Birth Reimagined. Hi, I'm Elle Kennedy, a birth photographer and doula based in Orange County, California, and I use she, her pronouns. Hi, I am Dr. Taylor Garcia, a doctor of chiropractic also based in Orange County, and I also use she, her pronouns. Today, we're talking to my friend Kristen Wood. Kristen, welcome to Birth Reimagined. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm good. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm a registered dietitian in the LA and OC metro areas. In my nutrition career, I've worked in the NICU at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA, and presently I work as an outpatient dietitian at the Long Beach VA. That's really neat. So Kristen, what is it about nutrition that's kind of, that got you started in the field? What, you know, what, what lights your fire? What I really love about nutrition is just that it can affect so many different aspects of our life, especially when it comes to preconception, prenatal, and postnatal nutrition, because that really gives us the best chance to set up our children for future good health. So Kristen, can you start by explaining to us what is the difference between a registered dietitian and somebody who just has a certificate as a nutritionist? Sure. So a registered dietitian has to go through a certain amount of training in order to obtain their registration. So you have to have a bachelor's in nutrition or dietetics. Starting in 2024, you'll also need to have a master's. We also complete a 1,200-hour internship in various aspects of nutrition, including clinical and community and food service. And then we have to pass an exam in order to get our registration as a dietitian. Whereas with a certificate in nutrition, those aren't quite as regulated within the U.S. And so there's a varying amount of education that goes into that. And in some cases, it's not sufficient or comparable to a dietitian's education, as well as the term nutritionist is not regulated in the United States. So congratulations, everybody listening is now a nutritionist. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds bad as chiropractic with all the the hours of, of internship and such. Right. There's a lot of education that goes into it. Like we, we took two two terms of nutrition in chiropractic, just kind of learned like about the macronutrients and micronutrients and that kind of stuff, but that was about it. We didn't get oh, a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, there's a lot of science that goes into the dietitian degrees. Lots of chemistry and biology and I mean it's a so good thing. Much. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. It's a good thing that's all there. Right. So what that means for our listeners is that it's going to be a very different experience than the one they get if they just take their child into their pediatrician or if they are going in to see their OBGYN for a postnatal appointment or if they go to their primary care physician. Going to a registered dietitian means somebody who that's their specialty. That is what their entire degree is based on. And that's, you know, they really have niched down and they know that topic forward and backward. Right, absolutely. So kind of bringing it back to what our podcast sort of focuses on, what are some key prenatal nutrients and like what are they for? Right. So the first one that I want to talk about is kind of beyond prenatal. It's preconception and that's folate. We might have also heard that called folic acid, Mm -hmm. which is just the synthetic form that we get in vitamins. Folate is actually in the food itself. And being the nutrition nerd I am, folate is my favorite micronutrient, so vitamin (laughs) or mineral. 
because nice. what it does I know who has a favorite vitamin or hey, you know what that's me? that's awesome <laughs> go ahead <laughs> Sure. But the reason that I think folate is so important is that it's used to close what we call the neural tube while we're developing the baby inside. So that includes the brain and the spinal cord all Mm -hmm. as one unit. And I say preconception as opposed to prenatal because that neural tube is closing within the first 17 to 30 days of gestation. And most women don't even know they're pregnant until about 57 days. Gotcha, so yeah. it's just really important for adult women or women of childbearing age to get the amount of folate or folic acid that you need in a day because that's going to happen before you even know you're expecting. What are that's some of the best really sources cool. of non, uh, non-synthetic non uh, folate? Right. So green leafy vegetables like spinach are a really great source for folate, as well as we used to have a major issue in the United States with neural tube defects, which occurs when that neural tube for the brain and the spine don't quite close properly. And that can result in things like spina bifida, as well as being born without a brain, which is really traumatic to me. But This used to be a really common thing in the United States once we started changing from whole grain products into the refined products, because we get a really good source of B vitamin from the whole grain products because it's the outer part of that grain. But when we're doing the processed version of that, we've taken away that outer part of the grain that has all of the really good nutrients. And so there is a law in the United States right now that mandates if you are taking away the bran part of the grain, you synthetically have to add back in those B vitamins, including folate. So in that case, it is folic acid, but so things like sliced bread, our cereals are all enriched, so they have that folic acid back in them. So are there other prenatal nutrients that are key that we should be looking for during, you know, either the preconception or the prenatal time period? Another nutrient for preconception is iron. In general, women cannot get enough iron as it is because with having periods, we're just constantly losing blood and creating new blood. So iron is extremely important to get. Some of the best sources for that are doing things like meat, which I know may not be in most people's diets. The reason that we prefer to get iron from meat is because it's already stored in a form in the meat that we call heme iron, and that's more bioavailable, so it's easier for our bodies to absorb that and use that iron versus the iron that we can find in grains and leafy greens. Cool. And then the last one, as far as preconception is concerned, is calcium, and that's because by the time we're 23, 25 years old, roughly, we've already achieved peak bone mass. We're not going to develop more bone. It's just kind of downhill after that. And so it's really important to go ahead and get that built up while we can. And then besides dairy products, what's a good source of calcium? Dairy is the most well-known source of calcium. Another option is, again, those leafy greens like spinach and kale. They're good for a lot of different nutrients that are good for preconception and prenatal. Spinach really is one of those, like, it has tons of nutrients in it that we need. Like, everyone should be doing spinach smoothies. Like, seriously, that is, like, one of the key ones we really should be all and all ingesting i know like if we learned anything from popeye eat your spinach 
<laughs> but if you do want to do smoothies with spinach, I recommend putting apple or banana in with it because that tends to absorb the flavor in spinach that some people may not like. So then we get it in that smoothie, but we don't have to deal with the taste. Gotcha. Cool. So um, did you want to talk about um, I know those were kind of preconception nutrients. Did you want to talk about prenatal as well? Or are yes. those about the same? Okay. It does have a bit of a change because once we're pregnant, even when we aren't pregnant, our body's preferred fuel source is carbohydrates, which are things like fruits, vegetables, grain products. So brown rice, bread, pasta, all that kind of stuff. And that's our body's preferred fuel source, like I mentioned, but especially during pregnancy, when we're having all those hormone shifts, that really starts to affect our body's ability to process those carbohydrates, which turn into sugar. And we kind of refer to it as a diabetogenic effect on pregnancy, meaning that early in pregnancy and in the middle of pregnancy, our insulin levels are kind of going up and down. And that's where we can start to get things like gestational diabetes. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, if we're not really paying attention to that, gestational diabetes can have some complications, including a more difficult birth, more risks for the mother like preeclampsia. And that's when we start to get those babies that are nine pounds or bigger, which I admit I'm not a mother, but I can't even imagine getting something that size out of my body. (laughs) So then what's the best way to kind of balance that? So we used to have what we called the food pyramid when I was growing up, but we've now shifted that and it's referred to as my plate. Mm -hmm. And then we also have what we call the healthy plate method. And I think that's the best way that we can really balance our nutrition because with that healthy plate method, we want half of our plate at meals to be low carb or non-starchy vegetables. So that's like the carrots, asparagus, zucchini, a lot of those vegetables are salads. And then that other half of our plate, we split again into quarters, and a quarter of that will be the grains, so the bread, the pasta, the rice, like we talked about, also corn and peas. And then that last quarter is where we get our protein, whether it's from meat, beans, or nuts. And that's kind of different than the average American plate, but by doing that, we're still getting good sources of carbs from that grain portion of the plate, but we're getting so many other things and we're not consuming too many carbs at one meal. Okay, so really basically really good portion control and then making sure you have that balance is really kind of key. Right, balance is pretty much the name of the game with nutrition regardless of what we're talking about because it's finding that happy balance between what you like taste and preference wise and then what's good for us nutrition wise as well as nutrients. Now, where do fruits kind of fall on the my plate type thing? So fruits tend to fall onto that half of our plate where we have our non-starchy, low-carb vegetables, or we can have just a small piece of fruit on the side. So something like a small apple, maybe half of a banana, because our bananas are way too oversized in the United States, and a whole (laughs) banana is just too much. Okay. I was wondering, because I have a friend who her uh, craving is oranges. Like, oh, it's wow. just, she's like, I have to have a bag of oranges in the house at all times. And it's, that's what <laughs> she's like ingesting. And then I was kind of wondering about the sugar content um, if, of, you know, the if fruits fell more on the vegetable side or kind of more on the starchy side because of that fruit content or because that sugar content. Right. So that does tend to fall more on the vegetable side, despite that sugar content. And that's also because it's 
a more natural sugar. Like if we have baked goods that we've added table sugar into, that's not quite as natural and it is slightly different when processed in our bodies. Ultimately, sugar is sugar, but having that natural source can be a little bit better for our bodies. And ultimately, when it comes to those pregnancy cravings, yes, it could just be your brain saying, this sounds really good, but I like to ascribe to the theory that if we're craving something, our body is saying, hey, we need something from this. So maybe with oranges, it's vitamin C. The only time you have to worry with cravings as far as nutrition is concerned is pregnancy is when you're wanting things like dirt or laundry detergent or ice cubes, because that's actually a condition and we really don't want to consume those things. We know that rationally, but sometimes that craving is just too big. And that is saying we need certain nutrients, but we're not necessarily going to get it from those foods, mm -hmm. except they're not really food. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know um, when I was pregnant with Teddy, I was really craving oatmeal the entire time. And oatmeal is not something that I generally like to eat. I don't <laughs> I don't like the texture of it. Um, so I started eating a lot of like overnight oats where you just like pour the milk in and you let it sit overnight. So it kind of thickens oh, right. up. Um, but I realized that oatmeal is actually super high in protein. And that's something a lot of pregnant women don't get enough of. Um, can you tell us how many grams of protein we normally need in our daily lives versus how much we need during pregnancy? Yeah. So in our normal lives, when we're non-pregnant, we need 0 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which I know we don't really deal with kilograms in the U.S. <laughs> so like divide your weight by two. That's roughly what your kilograms are. Okay. So we don't even need a full gram really unless we're doing heavy bodybuilding type workouts. But once we get into pregnancy, since we're developing a baby and building all of these new muscles and organs, our needs actually go up to 1.1 grams per kilogram for protein. And I think that evens out to somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60 to 75 grams per day-ish based on your yeah, body roughly. weight things. Um, that's a lot of protein. Like I, right. And I mean, luckily, there are a lot of different ways that we can get it, even if you have a vegan or a vegetarian diet. Um, but it is something to keep in mind. I remember my Bradley Method instructor when I was pregnant with Charlotte having us track our protein for an entire week and see if we were hitting our marks. And I was the only person in our class that was hitting their marks. And I realized it wasn't because of meat because I wasn't eating very much of it at the time. I had been vegetarian before and I reluctantly started eating some meat <laughs> while I was pregnant. Um, but it was coming from other things like a glass of milk, adding a glass of milk in you know, in between meals or somewhere during the day, having, you know, string cheese, even a handful of nuts, um, things like oatmeal, um, things like that, you know, it the, the couple grams here and there do add up. They really do. It's kind of like how calories, we're just like, oh, I'm going to eat a little bit here and then a little bit here, it adds up. But that's really great in terms of protein, because we are getting it from sources, even vegetables can have a tiny bit of protein to them. And that can be really helpful at the end of the day in meeting our protein goals. Yeah. Um, so are there any other specific things that we should keep in mind or be looking at during pregnancy? 
So since we've talked about carbohydrates and we've talked about protein, ultimately we have to circle back in terms of balance to the fat. And what we really need fat for during pregnancy is for brain development, because at least 60% of the brain is composed of some kind of fatty acids. And then it starts to get into more specific things with fat, like there's a component called DHA, which we're starting to have in our eggs in the U.S., and that can actually improve birth outcomes, including having a normal birth weight as opposed to low, and there's actually a lower rate of C-sections when you're having the DHA from the eggs in pregnancy. So how are we seeing that increase in DHA in chicken eggs here in the United States? Is that just because of better farming practices, or is there something specific going on? So one thing that's happening is as we're starting to kind of shift the grains and food that we're giving chickens, I know that they're giving them more flaxseed in their food, and that can increase those DHA and omega-3 fatty acids in the eggs. So it's kind of about diet composition for them, which ultimately leads to our diet composition. So it's kind of like the circle of life. Oh, I like it. The healthier the food we're giving to the animals, the healthier foods we are consuming. (laughs) Right. Who would have thunk, right? Um, So how about postnatal? After you have the baby, you're recovering, you might be breastfeeding or chest feeding. Um, I mean, literally, you you are, you know, your body is going back to how it was pre-pregnancy, but also you're sustaining this other life force outside of you as well. Right, because if we are breastfeeding we're not quite returning to our normal body and our normal metabolism because it actually takes an extra 500 to 600 calories a day to produce that milk to feed the baby with. And that's not to say that nutrition isn't important if you're formula feeding. Ultimately, at the end of the day, a fed baby is all that really matters. It doesn't matter how you fed them. They receive nutrition and that's the most important part. But it makes such a difference in terms of your metabolism when you are breastfeeding. Yeah. I I breastfed both of my kids. And with Charlotte, I was breastfeeding from day one with her. And my metabolism was so quick. I was eating more, but I was still just burning so many more calories. But since Teddy spent two and a half weeks in the hospital first, I was pumping. And so my Mm -hmm. body wasn't getting that feedback loop. Um, I don't know if our listeners know this, but when you actually feed a baby from the breast, um, their spit gets absorbed back into your skin of your nipple and your body basically reads what the baby's needs are and produces milk that meets those baby's immediate needs. Um, So I wasn't getting that feedback loop because I was pumping and not immediately feeding Teddy. And so that changed my, my metabolism after Teddy was completely different until I was able to start actually breastfeeding Teddy again after Teddy had recovered. Right. And breastfeeding is another one of the things I get really excited about with nutrition, just because that feedback loop is insane to me. That is so, it is so cool. Yeah. So cool. (laughs) Your body's just constantly adjusting. And so like we talk about the first milk to come out after birth, we call colostrum. Mm -hmm. And one of my college professors described that as the world's best protein bar. Because even though it's like super small quantities we're getting, it's high fat and high protein. 
and it's what the baby needs right away. And I just think it's so cool that our bodies are constantly shifting the composition of it in order to account for age. If the baby is sick, what they weigh. And it's just so cool. I have so many feelings about breastfeeding. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to share a story about colostrum from Teddy because um so when you're breastfeeding with colostrum you're usually producing about 2 tablespoons that first day or about 1 ounce and by the second or third day it's up to about 2 ounces of colostrum at a time um and then your milk composition starts to change and you're losing that colostrum um my body was in tune with Teddy's, even though I wasn't directly breastfeeding them while they were in the hospital, my body knew that something was wrong with the baby when they were still in me. And when I was pumping for the first week and a half, I was producing upwards of eight to 12 ounces of colostrum per pumping. Wow. And I was bringing these bags, nine, 10, 12 ounce bags of Colostrum, you can tell it's colostrum because the color is very, very different from breast milk any other time. It's this gold color. It's like very, very yellow. Um, And breast milk later on when the baby's older is usually white or can almost be like clearish or have a blue tint to it. Um, It's just a very different color composition. And I was bringing in these big bags of like dark yellow colostrum and one of the nurses was just like I have never seen this much colostrum in my life and like I was just sitting there like my body knows my baby needs it like I don't know what to tell you um but yeah so Teddy ended up having colostrum for for much longer than just the first couple days just because my body was like yep that's what this kid needs so that's what it was producing and just like my soapbox, gosh, like I said, so many feelings about breastfeeding. I think it's also cool because we don't necessarily need to change our intake in terms of the most common food allergens when we're breastfeeding. We can still eat eggs, milk, peanuts, the top allergens, and it can actually decrease the risk of food allergy in the baby too, which I think is awesome, especially as we're starting to see a lot more food allergies coming through. Yes, it can decrease it, but if if the kid does have a severe allergy, it can still trigger some of those. It can, yes. It's like a small exposure amount, so mm-hmm. if it's not a severe allergy, it's great. If it is, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just going to happen and you have to adjust for it. Yeah, but the nice thing is it can let you know ahead of time that that is a, a, a severe food allergy or a food allergy to be on alert for. Absolutely. Um, I, I keep talking about Teddy because Teddy is the child who has all the health <laughs> problems. Um, but that was actually what clued us into the fact that Teddy had a peanut allergy. Um, I had not had any peanuts up until that point and when I started eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches Teddy started breaking out in a rash because it was transferring through my milk and it happened like two or three days in a row and I finally put it together that it was the peanuts so I went off of peanuts for a few days the rash cleared up and then I brought peanuts back in again and sure enough the rash showed up within 24 hours again and so once Teddy was old enough to start taking like you know eating actual 
food, we had them tested for food allergies, and sure enough, peanuts came up as one of the allergies. I don't know if you told me that story before, but it's, like, such a perfect illustration of that. Yeah, but, like, yeah, it's one of those things that, like, microdoses can be, can help regulate it for them, or it could be a really early clue that your kid might have a severe allergy to something. Right. So do you think it would be wise for a nursing parent to sort of try that slow introduction of the various food allergies to see if something's triggered? Personally, I say yes, because as Al illustrated, it can give you that early clue, as well as through the breast milk, it's just such small doses that if it is a severe allergy, yes, you'll see it. If it isn't, you might be kind of desensitizing in a way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, for again, for Teddy, Teddy's also allergic to dairy. I drank dairy milk and I ate cheese and, you know, all of the things that are associated with that the entire time. And Teddy still has a pretty severe dairy allergy. But I like to think it's better than it could have been because Teddy was still getting those microdoses and wasn't having, you know, that immediate reaction as a baby. But yeah. I have a friend who had to cut dairy out of her diet while she's breastfeeding because her baby is having a reaction even through mm. the breast milk. So it really does depend on your baby and what their needs are and how severe their allergies are to different things. So, it, you know, if you are having a baby who all of a sudden is starting to become fussy for no reason, maybe take a look at your diet and see if there's something that might be affecting them. But know that, you know, some of those other, you know, high allergen things introduced in those microdoses can actually protect them in the long run. Absolutely. Now to kind of possibly backtrack a little bit. Um, so I'm currently doing the um, International Chiropractic Pediatric Association Certificate Program. And we have to take a bunch of classes, of course, all online right now due to, you know, travel restrictions. Um, but one of the ones I took was a nutritional type class. And one of the things that um, our, our instructor talked about was selenium. And, you know, one of the main sources of one of the main food sources of selenium being the Brazil nut. What is your thoughts right. on that? You know, when I was in grad school, somebody in the year ahead of me actually did their entire thesis topic about the content of selenium in Brazil nuts. Nice. Which is such a niche topic. Very. But what they found is it completely depends upon the soil that it's grown in. Hmm, that makes sense. So, if, yeah, so if the soil is deficient or kind of depleted of selenium, those Brazil nuts aren't going to be as useful. So it's not really a consistent amount of selenium in Brazil nuts. Makes sense. But then what about like just selenium in general for pre and postnatal process? Is it is it one of the ones that that you've you've come to find it's important? Is it one of the ones that's kind of just there? It kind of falls into the category of like just there. It's important, but it's important across all age groups. Okay. It's actually one that we don't frequently see issues with in terms of deficiency. Okay. Just because it does come in more sources than Brazil nuts. Like, again, it's in eggs. Mm -hmm. And so we're still able to get it from other things. And usually that's not too much of an issue. Okay. Are there any other um, nutrients that you look for postnatal that can sometimes be a concern? So it's not so much of a nutrient, but water. Water is super important for women who are breastfeeding because 
you are producing a liquid in your body and you need so much stinking water when you're breastfeeding. (laughs) That was my favorite thing I brought home from the hospital. Like when you leave, they like send you home with like, you know, here's, you know, some extra of the giant pads and the mesh underwear and like, you know, the, the Perry bottle and like all those things. My favorite thing that I brought home was a 96 ounce like giant cup with a straw nice because when you are (laughs) breastfeeding and you have a squirmy baby and you're trying you know if you have another toddler at home god forbid like a regular cup for some reason just becomes a pain in the butt it's gonna get knocked over you're gonna set it down and not be able to you know it's gonna be hard to handle one-handed or whatever having a cup with a straw (laughs) was my favorite thing i'm just like envisioning those giant slurpees that you get at convenience stores right now that was that was like sort of what this thing looked like and it had like you know some logo or brand or whatever on it from you know whoever supplied them to the hospital but of course I used that thing like the entire time I was breastfeeding. I didn't get rid of it until I was done breastfeeding because I like all day long, like no matter how long I had been sitting on that couch or doing whatever, like that bottle would have water in it because it was so big. (laughs) Like I could (laughs) not make it run out. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. I'm so glad they sent you home with that. (laughs) No. Actually, another thing that from the class that I took that I would like to get your input on is nettle tea for breastfeeding. Have you heard of that? I have. It kind of falls into one of those categories where my class has talked about doing things like the cookies that are supposed to kind of help with milk production. And we don't have a ton of evidence behind this stuff, just like partly because there's not enough studies. Nutrition studies are really hard to do, especially in terms of pregnancy and babies, because research ethics is a thing. Yeah. And we don't know if this is going to be completely detrimental. So we really can't do it from an ethical standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I'll admit, we're probably not super strong in terms of research. But one thing they just really emphasize is talking about like, the different supplements like teas or the cookies to help produce more breast milk, unless there's some kind of issue going on with your body, your body is more than likely producing enough milk to meet your baby's needs. Because like we talked about, it's just constantly adjusting to meet their needs. And if you are having issues with milk supply, I always forget what IBCLC stands for, but it's a certified lactation consultant. Mm -hmm. I think it's the international board. They are always available to help, whether it's with latching, milk production. And I just think that's a really strong resource for women who are breastfeeding. Okay. I agree. Um, I actually had some issues with milk production with Teddy because when I went back to work, I would have to pump while I was at work. And when I was pumping at work, I just wasn't getting the same amount pumping as Teddy was consuming while I was gone. So Teddy was consuming six to eight ounces per feeding, but I was only producing one or two ounces after like Mm -hmm. 30, 45 minutes of pumping at work. So one of the things I personally recommend is if pumping isn't working for you personally, try a different pump. Everyone swears by the electric pumps and that's what, you know, 
um, at the time I was getting help from Wick and Wick sent me home with an electric pump. And so that's what I was using at work. And it just didn't work for me. As soon as I switched to a manual handheld pump that I was doing myself, in 15 minutes, I was producing 9 to 12 ounces of milk. Before, I was producing 1 to 2 ounces after pumping both sides with an electric pump for 45 minutes. So try something different. If it isn't working for you, that's okay. There, there are other things. And then um, the other thing that I did is anytime I saw my milk supply start to dip, I did make some cookies. I will find the recipe and I will <laughs> post a link to it um, on the show notes for this episode. Um, but I swear by those cookies. Anytime I started to see my milk supply dip, I would have like, I would make like a batch and keep them in the freezer. And I would have like one or two in the morning, like at my snack break at work, and then like one or two like later in the day at work. And my milk production like went up by like probably one and a half times. So like if it started to dip to like four ounces, it would jump up to like six to eight ounces. Um like within like 24 hours or so so it depends on what you're putting in them um mm -hmm. i've heard most people like oatmeal based cookies um usually with something like brewer's yeast some type of nut butter things like that that again they're high in protein they're high in a lot of those things that your body is using to create that milk Oh, and be aware, if you use sun butter to bake these, um, they react a little funny in the oven and they will turn green and they might look <laughs> like pot cookies. <laughs> um, it was definitely a concern when I brought my first one out of the oven and then I realized um, sun butter has an oxidizing effect <laughs> um, when mixed with certain other ingredients. And it No big deal. Just over here eating my pot cookie to produce breast milk. Um, yeah, so there was a minor concern of like, hmm, that's an odd color. That's <laughs> nope, totally normal for if you substitute sun butter. Because again, we had realized that Teddy was allergic to peanuts, right. so I wasn't using peanut butter in it. Absolutely. And if you notice that there's some foods or doing things like those cookies that seem to affect your milk production, by all means, go for it. Everybody is different and they're not going to respond the same way to the same kinds of stress. Yeah. So Kristen, what are the best ways besides supplementation um, to get these nutrients that we need? So personally, when it comes to getting the micronutrients, because macronutrients are the carbs, the protein, the fat that we've talked about, we don't really have any issues with those. But when it comes to micronutrients, I still really support a whole food diet to make sure we're getting enough. And that's just because that's the most natural form of it. And so our bodies can use that a little bit better. And the best way we can do that is we keep calling it eating the rainbow, but that's because different nutrients produce different colors. So orange and red things like tomatoes, cantaloupe, that's where we get the vitamin A and the vitamin C. But then if we're eating leafy greens, we have the iron, we have vitamin K, and just different colors indicate different nutrients. I also tend to have hesitancy when it comes to supplementation because personally for us in the U.S., the supplement market isn't regulated. Yeah. There is no federal agency that is checking 
do you actually have the 500 milligrams of vitamin C in here that you say you have? Yeah. Have you declared all the ingredients? They're not checking that quality. And then some supplements will make claims about this is an overshoot, but oh, this can cure breast cancer. Nobody is fact checking them on anything. Yeah. And so I just really hesitate when it comes to supplements because we don't exactly know what we're getting and if it's what it says it is. And I think the other concern with supplements is also how bioavailable is it in your body? Mm-hmm. You're taking this power-packed, mm-hmm. you know, pill or vitamin or whatever it is, supplement, and is your body actually digesting it and able to use everything that's in there? Or is most of it passing right through you? Yeah. Right. Because a lot of vitamins and minerals are what we call water-soluble, which means once we've taken in the amount that our body needs whether it's the recommended amount or something different we just pee out the excess and a lot of those water soluble nutrients we are able to get through food with no issue like vitamin c is the easiest thing to get in the u.s kind of diet and if we're taking a vitamin c supplement you're just creating expensive urine basically (laughs) (laughs) also with with your daily like daily vitamin some vitamins compete with each other for how they're absorbing the body so that's why the amounts are so huge if you look on the bottle it's like ridiculously high amounts because they Mm -hmm. tend to compete so they basically try and you know put more than you need hoping that the right amount will get through and like get into it into actual use so yeah that's that's what makes kind of tough um the presenter at on the class was like yeah i know my vitamin company like personally and i've been to their warehouse to like really like check on them and i'm going that's great most of us can't do that yeah (laughs) but i mean it's you know we as chiropractors we obviously try and you know not be like we're obviously full on non-nutritionists or dietary um sorry dietitians so we can do the generic stuff but even then you know we try and do our best with it but it's one of those things like yeah just refer that out (laughs) it's easier yeah just refer that out and lots of insurance companies are working with dietitians now whether they're affiliated with a hospital or health system or if they're a private practice especially once you get into like medicare medicaid type stuff this is literally what we are here for we are here to be a resource for you and support you however we can so the other thing with supplements is sometimes certain things need to be paired with other things for them to be bioavailable for your body. So, for example, I take turmeric as an anti-inflammatory, as an all-natural anti-inflammatory. It needs to be paired with black pepper in order for my body to absorb it properly. So if I just ate turmeric straight, my body wouldn't really be able to absorb very much of it. But when pairing it with black pepper, it like I don't know, combines better and like bonds together so that my body can digest it and use those anti-inflammatory properties the way that they need to be used or. Right. And I even have like a food example of that beyond supplements, because we talked earlier about this thing called heme iron that we get from eating meat. And the heme iron is basically just what's bound to the red blood cells in meat, like it is in humans. That's where Mm -hmm. our iron is usually stored because it carries oxygen. But then we have non-heme iron, which is found in things like breakfast cereals. But because it's not that heme iron, it's harder for our body to absorb. 
And what can actually help improve that is vitamin C. So if you're drinking milk, the calcium is kind of inhibiting the non-heme iron absorption. So having cereal with milk is not the best for us, but at the same time, it doesn't make much sense to put orange juice on your cereal. But if you're <laughs> no, having it on the I'm... side, it works. <laughs> now I'm thinking back to all those like cereal commercials that would show like a glass of orange juice next to their bowl of cereal and like part oh of a well-balanced so diet, right. yeah. well-balanced breakfast. And in my brain, I was always like, why would you have a glass of orange juice with your cereal? And now it totally makes sense. I it never even thought helps. about that kind of advertising. Yeah, now it totally makes sense. <laughs> So, Kristen, one thing that we like to ask all of our guests on the show is, what is your dream for the birth community? My dream for the birth community, from at least the nutrition perspective, is I would really just love to see everybody feeling empowered when it comes to your own nutrition, especially when it comes to feeding your baby. I want you to feel empowered, whether you're breastfeeding, you have that support in order to feel comfortable breastfeeding, or if you're formula feeding, I just want you to feel confident and know that what you're doing is the right thing. And I just want everybody to be confident in how they're feeding themselves and their kids, because look, nobody's perfect. I had a cupcake. I can't remember if it was last night or the night before. <laughs> yep. Dietitians eat cupcakes, PSA. <laughs> But just know that nobody's perfect. There's going to be days when you eat total pizza, high fat, just what we tend to think of as junk foods. I don't like to call it that. And then there's other days that we're healthy. Just know that nobody's perfect and you are doing what is best for you and ultimately what's best for your baby. Give yourself some grace. Yes. Cupcake if it's gonna make you happy because a happy mama, happy parent is gonna lead to happier outcomes across the world. Amen. <laughs> so Kristen, what is one thing you will do for yourself this coming week? So something I'm going to do for myself this coming week. Gosh. I feel like I have like three things, but hopefully hiking. I've said I'm going to go hiking the last two weekends and it never happened. And then just, I love to bake. I do a weekly baking challenge and that's just a nice like de-stressor for me, especially when you're able to just produce something and say, hey, I made that thing, which is very different than the birth community where you are building a human, but hey, I can make a decent cupcake. <laughs> you make great cupcakes. I don't know what you're talking about. They're way better than decent. <laughs> I think it depends on the flavor. Okay, but they're always gorgeous. So even if they're uh, on the flavor, they're always gorgeous. <laughs> well, thank you. So Kristen, where can our listeners find you? Instagram, website, anything like that where they can connect with you? So I'm on Instagram at Nutrition by Kristen RD. And then my website is NutritionbyKristenRD.com. And Kristen is spelled K-R-I-S-T-E-N. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us all about nutrition. I love it. I love nerding out with people. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me and for nerding out with me. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming on with us. And for our listeners, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much for joining us here on Birth Reimagined. If you'd like to join our Facebook community, you can find us there at Birth Reimagined Family. And if you'd like to join our email list, you can get the link to that on the show notes for this episode. Being a member of our email list gets you access to all our freebies and makes sure you're kept in the loop whenever a new episode drops or we have anything exciting to share. Thanks again and see you next time.